Amen. So many reasons that it is good to be together with the church, good to pray for one another. Thank you for faithfully praying, especially uh, for those uh, that are struggling. Uh, Bob said up and down kind of week, but is at home, uh, and Carol continues to care for him. Uh, Gary, uh, after some time in the hospital, got out this week, and he's actually with us this morning, and then and then uh, praying for Mike. He was in a rehab center all week trying to get strength back, did so well that he's getting out in about a half hour uh, and, and being able to come home. So God is answering prayer. We're grateful for that. Uh, I'm grateful to be with the church for a lot of reasons, and one of them is I forget stuff. I forget important stuff, and I need to be reminded. I let Kirsten know usually if I'm going to the store and there's something I need to get, if the list is longer than two, I'm going to need it written down or I'm going to forget about it. Uh, and, and I hear that as you age, that happens more and more. So I, I think I'm in for some trouble uh, as the years go on. It's easy to forget stuff. One thing that we cannot and must not forget, though, as a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it is good to be together to sing songs that remind us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we've already done, to take communion that reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to open up the word of God that points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over again. And so today we continue sermon number two in our book in our series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, when, when Lynn prayed, he actually said something about the second book of Hebrews. It's the second chapter of Hebrews, not the second book. Uh, but second chapter of Hebrews today, uh, this is, this is a, a unique book in the New Testament, a book that uh, was written really in the form of a sermon. So the first 12 chapters are a sermon intended to be just like read to a church as the letter is distributed. The last chapter really looks more like a letter, but the first 12 chapters, one sermon. Uh, And so written, though, uh, to a group of people who were Jewish, who had become Christians in the mid-60s AD, and for whatever reason, probably in part because persecution is rising, that these people are now tempted to turn away from Jesus. These who had heard the gospel professed faith in Jesus, now tempted to turn away from Jesus. And so the aim of the book and the aim of this whole sermon series is pretty simple. It is this, to highlight the greatness of Jesus and convince them in that case, or us in our case, of the need to stick with Jesus because Jesus is better than anything. So that's what we're doing. Last week in chapter 1, we were introduced to this argument that Jesus is better than angels. There was some sort of fascination that had gone too far uh, amongst these people that they were really venerating angels higher than they should have been venerated. And so uh, the argument had to be made as he makes this argument, Jesus is better than anything. He starts out, Jesus is the better revelation of God and Jesus is better than than angels. By the way, I made a mistake. This happens frequently that I make mistakes. Uh, Last week, I did make a comment when I was talking about angels. Just kind of, it wasn't in my notes. I just kind of threw it in there uh, because I was just thinking as I was talking, which is dangerous. Uh, But 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 I said something about angels. Like scripture, we we have a lot of things we think about angels that aren't necessarily biblical. I mentioned something about angels not having wings. Uh, Most of the time in scripture, 
Angels are not mentioned as having wings. There are three times in Scripture where angels are mentioned as having wings. I should have thought of this. The cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant have wings. And in Isaiah's vision of the seraphim, in Isaiah chapter 6, they had six wings. Okay? So angels sometimes are commented as having wings. Most of the time, it's not mentioned. They don't have halos. That's never mentioned anywhere. Okay? That's cute for kids' books, but it's not really in the Bible. And if I'm wrong about that, correct me about that this week, and, and I'll come back and... and uh, and share my mistake with you next week. But more importantly, chapter 1 of Hebrews was not about angels. It's about Jesus. And it's about arguing this point that Jesus is far superior to angels. And so there was these uh, over and over again statements about what God says about the superiority of the Son. And the call then, really, that we, we heard from that is, well, we ought to submit to Him. If, if Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, has this much power and is put by the Father in this position, we should submit ourselves to Him. That was Hebrews chapter 1. Now, chapter 2 today is the conclusion of the argument that Jesus is better than angels. And as we walk through this, we're going to see the first of the warning passages in Hebrews. Hebrews is known for its warning passages, and we get the first one here in chapter 2. And then we're going to hear again about the superiority of the Son, but in a much different way than we heard about it in chapter 1. So, uh, Hebrews is a book that is complicated. It it can be hard. You don't just read through it quickly like, oh yeah, I got that. Uh, So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Scripture here like we always do in a moment, but instead of reading the entirety of chapter 2, I'm going to just read the first four verses and then I'll start preaching on those, and then we'll read a few more verses, and I'll preach on those. So, so we'll just hear, because it's, it's a lot to take in at once. Let me just tell you one thing really quick about the pace uh, of this sermon series. I, I wrestled with this. I thought about, well, because Hebrews is complicated, we could slow way down and take off really small chunks and really dig deep and try to understand it. Uh, like every detail, how this related, spend lots of time in the Old Testament. I think if I was leading a Bible study on Hebrews, I would probably do that. But as I reflected on it, wrestled with it more, prayed through it, I recognized that Hebrews is a sermon meant to be read in one sitting for for everybody there. So it's one sermon in chapters 1 through 12. I don't need to take one sermon and break it up into 50-some sermons, but we are going to break it up into 19. That means the pace will be pretty quick. We're almost going, we went through a chapter last week, a chapter this week, a chapter next week. We'll slow down a little bit. Uh, but we're going through it relatively quickly. I want us to make sure we get the big idea of the argument of Hebrews and let that settle in, even if, and that's why hopefully these scripture journals are helpful, that on your own you might want to dig into a lot more detail. Use the journal for that. We even started, like last night, our family just went through Hebrews too. We found it beneficial when we were doing 2 Timothy this summer. Using that journal, groups got together, studied it ahead of time. We're more ready to hear the Word of God preached. So that's what we're doing as a family. On Saturday nights, we're hanging out and, and studying the passage uh, that, that will be preached on Sunday morning. So uh, if those are useful to you, pick one up for that uh, purpose um, or however else you want to use it. But if you're able to, stand. Uh, We'll pray and we'll read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. God, thank you that you give us your church and that you give your church music and that you give your church musicians and that you give your people voices that we could join together in, in 
worshiping Jesus and remembering, uh, beholding the Lamb uh, and, and looking at what was accomplished on the cross for us. And yet, we need to hear from you in your word. And so, help us to be attentive, to pay careful attention uh, that we might hear of the superiority of the Son and be more convinced of that here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 2, uh, I'll read verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Amen. You can be seated. So let's look at that section first. All of this is going to lead us into taking communion here in a little bit. If you don't have a journal that you're taking notes in, and it's helpful for you to take notes, there is a sermon notes page there in the bulletin as well. Point number one is this, don't drift from the gospel. Don't drift from the gospel. This is the first of these warning passages, and it begins, really, it probably would have been better for me to end last week with chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Because it starts with the word, therefore, it's all tied back to what we saw last week. Because Jesus is the better revelation, better than angels, has a superior position and power, therefore, so get that, because of that, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Because of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, we ought to pay closer attention, much closer attention to what we have heard Reason number one that we must do this, lest we drift away from it. Reason number two, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, okay, so this message by angels proved to be reliable, you're you're wondering, if you're slowing down, like, what's he talking about there? A message from angels that was reliable? What's he talking about? If we were doing, again, a Bible study, we'd spend some time looking at Galatians 3.19, okay? So if if, if you just, we're not going to go there right now, go ahead and write that down if you want to go back later. Galatians 3.19 will give you a little better description of what he's getting at here, referring to, I think, the the law uh, coming to God's people with angels in some form serving as intermediaries. So, so referring back to the message of the Old Testament, we heard this, and we, we knew that was reliable. It says that proved to be reliable, and think about the Old Testament, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Okay? We know that's to be true. But now that we know the gospel, Jesus to be the fulfillment of all of that, look what it says in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we were to 
hear the gospel message and ignore the gospel message, there, there will be accountability. We will be held accountable for that. Let us not be the people who hear the gospel message and just kind of ignore it, but be people who do not neglect such a great salvation. We must keep in front of us all the time what Christ has accomplished for us. This gospel message needs to be in front of us. And then another reason that we ought to pay attention is it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. And God bore witness by signs, wonders, and miracles. So all sorts of reasons were given to heed this warning not to drift away from the gospel and not to neglect such a great salvation. That's warning passage number one, probably a lot more tied in with the first chapter than with what is to come, but there's some hints at what is to come here as well. Let me pause, though, for a point of application. So, point of verses 1 through 4, don't drift from the gospel. Application from verses 1 through 4, don't drift from the gospel, okay? Don't drift from the gospel. Last summer, it feels like a long time ago already, but last summer I went on this backpacking trip uh, with a group of other pastors. Uh, We went in, like, pretty much seclusion in the Rocky Mountains out in Colorado. Uh, And when we were walking out, uh, we didn't have llamas with us, so we weren't totally alone. Uh, But that group of guys and llamas, and we're walking out of the Rocky Mountains, finally get to a trail where we run into other people again. We make it to the head of that trail, and we're waiting in line for the first toilet that we have seen in days. So this is exciting, right? And we're waiting in line, and, and I, it was a long line, unfortunately, uh, and there was this lady that I was standing in line next to. And so just to strike up conversation, I asked, are, are you a local? Like, do you live right around here? And she said, yes, I do. And this was where we were. This is, this is right at the trail, the, the trail uh, head. Looking out at the mountains, and I'm just looking at that. I'm still amazed. We're like a week into this, but I'm still amazed at just the majestic awesomeness of what God has created. And so I asked her a question. I can't remember exactly what it was, but something like, like, if you live here, is this still awesome to you? Like, do you look at it? And she was honest and said, most of the time I don't even notice it. Like, she can see stuff out her backyard, right? Uh, And she doesn't even notice it. She just kind of takes it for granted. She said, sometimes, though, I stop to soak it all in. And that reminds me of this reminder, this warning, especially, I think, for those of us who maybe have been Christians for quite some time. When we hear again and again the good news about the awesomeness of Jesus and the good news of the gospel, let's make sure that we don't become people that just kind of neglect it because, well, it's just kind of, it's just there doesn't really affect me. I, I don't really stop and soak it in and pay attention to it. Let's not be like that. Here are some common causes, I think. I, I just got to tell you, I've heard too many stories, too many stories of people who professed faith in Jesus who over time have just kind of drifted away. Usually it's not a quick break. It's just kind of a slow drifting away. Here's some common causes of drifting from the gospel. There's others, but here's a couple of them. One, distraction. Remember the command here. We must pay much more careful attention. We must pay much more careful attention to the message. One of the reasons that we do not, that we start to drift from the gospel is because we are paying much closer attention to all sorts of other things. Sometimes good things. Paying much closer attention to work. Paying much close, more close attention to our calendars, to our grandkids, to our activities, 
to, to school, to your phone, to your TV, all sorts of things that attract our attention, and we give them so much attention that we're not paying much closer attention to this message that we have heard. So distraction, discouragement is another reality, right? Discouragement. We've been hurt by the church, and so we kind of close ourselves off to the awesomeness of the gospel. We, we have health struggles, when you get health, well, like when you're struggling with your health, like everything becomes about like getting through that, whether it's physical health or mental health. You're just trying to make it through, and we start to lose sight of the gospel. Broken relationships can do the same thing. The other thing, disinterest. You can just get bored with it. Like, oh, it's in my backyard. I see it all the time. I don't even think about it. Common solutions, these are the same kind of things you learned in Sunday school if you went to Sunday school when you were a kid. How, how, do we, how do we battle? How do we keep remembering and not drift from the gospel? Read your Bible, pray, go to church, right? <laughs> like th- those are the answers. Jesus, read your Bible, pray, go to church. That's the answers in Sunday school. Uh, and, and really, this, these are the gifts that God has given us. If we don't want to neglect the gospel, if we're reading the Bible, we're going to hear the gospel, and that's going to be in front of us. Responding as we hear from God in His Word, we respond to Him by talking to Him in prayer, and we get together with the church. Get together Sunday morning. This is great. You've given up like an hour and fifteen minutes. Maybe it'll be an hour and a half today uh, to be with the church. This is good. We remember when we sing together, when we take communion together, when we hear the Word preached together. We need more probably than an hour and a half a week. And so as fall gets going and Sunday school happens and life groups happen and and youth groups happen, get engaged, be with people who are going to help keep in front of us that we might not neglect such a great salvation, keeping in front of us the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so that's the first four verses. Then we get to verse 5. And here... I think what we're going to see is this, that everything is subjected to Jesus who subjected himself to suffering and death. Let's read verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So again, I think the big idea of this section is everything is subjected to Jesus who subjected himself to suffering and death. The argument that he's making, remember, all throughout Hebrews, we're going to see lots of Old Testament quotes because he's talking to people who grew up Jewish and valued highly the Word of God, which at that time was what we now call the Old Testament. And so if he's going to try to make a point with them, he's going to use a lot of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so here he's using Psalm 8. Actually, when Lynn prayed earlier, when he began, he began his prayer with Psalm 8, right? 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then that's a psalm we often use to kind of attribute to us, those who, because we are in Adam, we're human beings, God has given us dominion over the rest of creation, but we have all failed to, to exercise that dominion well, but Jesus is the one. And so here, Psalm 8 is applied to the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one who has been given dominion over all creation. Everything is subjected to Him, making Him, though, for a little while lower than the angels. And so, Psalm 8 is the argument here, but the way that everything is subjected to Jesus is kind of interesting. I mean, we love this good news. Do you see it in the middle of verse 8? Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. So, everything that happens under the control of Jesus, there is nothing outside of His control. But then, did you see the rest of verse 8? This is comforting to see the rest of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Because the people that are hearing this sermon, just like the people hearing this sermon right now, you're smart people, and you look at the world around us, and we say, well, is this what it looks like when Jesus is in control of everything? Because it kind of looks like stuff is a mess a little bit. I mean, imagine being a Christian at that time. You're a small minority of the population and a minority that is being persecuted by the people in power. Like, wait, so Jesus is in control of everything, everything is subjected to him, and, it, and what it looks like is if we identify with him, then we get persecuted? Like if we're with Jesus, stuff goes worse for us? So you get why they might be confused. They get, you get why they feel tension. And so application point for us, we feel that same tension, don't we? We feel that same tension. And so application point is this, even when it doesn't look like it, we can know that all things are under his control. We know that Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus ascended. We learned in chapter 1, He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We know all this happens, but we look at the world around us, we look at the state of the church, even in our own country, we, we look at our families, we look at our own hearts, We're like, man, it just doesn't look like Jesus is in control. It feels like stuff is spinning out of control. We know that, that, that the time is coming when Jesus returns, that, that all things, we will, we will feel the reality of His reign in a much more real way. We're living in what theologians call the already, but not yet. That's the tension that we're living in. That's the tension they were living in. So I appreciate that, that it has that there in verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But isn't it so good to know that there is nothing outside of His control? So even though you feel like everything's spinning out of control, maybe just in your own life, you can, like tonight, go to bed and sleep in peace because the reality is that there is nothing outside of His control. This is good. All right, so we move on. Move on to verses 10 through 18, the last verses of this passage, where here's the point. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to mingle in uh, the, the, the explanation of the text 
with the application of the text, okay? So Jesus suffered and died as our brother, and then the application is that benefits us. To, to set this up and help us to understand this, I'm going to tell you a story first. Okay, the year is 2000. Some of you remember that, some of you don't. Year was 2000, I'm a college student, uh, and I'm working multiple jobs to pay for college, and one of the jobs that I'm working is at the front desk of a hotel in Orange City, Iowa called the Dutch Colony Inn. Okay? So I work at the Dutch Colony Inn. It is also the year 2000, a presidential election year, and the governor of Texas, who grew up in a wealthy political family, attended Yale, and was the son of a former president of the United States, made a reservation at our hotel where I'm working at the front desk. Now, he did not call me up and give me his credit card number. In fact, that was all done by his staffers. And when they came in, they not only rented a room for him, they rented a room for him and every room on the side and below it. So everything kind of insulating him, protecting him and insulating him um, from being in touch with a number of other people. But you consider his education and his pedigree and all of those kinds of things. This was a man of considerable position and power. And later on that year, his position and power would become even higher. I guess he was inaugurated in 2001. So a little bit after that, right, his position and power just become greater when he is elected as the 43rd president of the United States of America. That's a man with considerable position and power. And we look at a man like that, and I think of like the insulation that happens. Like you couldn't just like knock on his hotel room door and say, hey, what are you up to? Like you can't do that, right? We assume that somebody who's, you know, been to Yale and comes with like that kind of family, that kind of guy, he's not going to be able to relate to us and I can't really relate to him. There's insulation. There's, there's, some, there's some stuff around him. How much more, think about this, how much more when we consider the position and power of Jesus would it be natural to assume? I mean, think about this. The position and power of Jesus. What did we learn even just last week in one chapter of the Bible? What's the position of Jesus? He is the heir of all things. He's not just the son of a former president. He is the heir of all things. He is the eternal son of God. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. All things we learned this week are subjected to him. So we learn about the position of Jesus. We heard about the power of Jesus. Remember last week, all things created by him. The universe upheld by the word of his power. All of these things about the power of Jesus. And we would be right to wonder how someone with that kind of position and that kind of power could have relationship with us. How is he going to relate to us? How are we going to relate to him? I mean, his position and power are so much greater than that of the President of the United States because for his power, there are no checks and balances. And for his position, there are no term limits. He reigns forever as eternal king. The whole universe upheld by the word of his power. And it would be natural for us to wonder, well, how can we relate to him and how can he relate to us? And that's what makes verses 10 through 18 so glorious. Let's walk through them. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he 
for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we learned something about Jesus there. He's called the founder of our salvation. And through him, God is bringing many sons to glory. We just sang that uh, earlier in that first song we sang, right? How deep the Father's love for us, like bringing many sons to glory as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory, right? We just sang that. That comes from this passage, and it's this reminder that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Now, quick note on something here. Where it says, made perfect through suffering, that does not mean that Jesus was not perfect before suffering. That, that, that term, made perfect, could also be translated perfected or fulfilled or consecrated. The idea that, that Jesus could not accomplish what needed to be accomplished if he, if he did not walk through becoming fully human and suffering and dying. So, so his role as priest is perfected or consecrated or made perfect through his suffering. And this is how God, for whom and by whom all things exist, saves us or brings many sons to glory. It comes through the suffering of Jesus. So I mentioned I'm just going to intermingle. Here's the, here's the application. Benefit for us, here's one benefit. There's going to be a list of these things. Through Jesus' suffering, God calls sinners like us sons and brings us to glory. You think, that benefit, you think this is applicable to us? Yeah, right? Through Jesus' suffering, God calls sinners like us sons and brings us to glory. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is the one who makes us holy, sanctifies us, and he so identifies with us. One source, I think, that refers to our common humanity, Jesus being born of a woman just like we were born of a woman. And note, note, you're going to note all through this family relationships. So when we were going through this last night as a family, we're just highlighting all these different family words, children, sons, brothers, that show up in these verses. And then a couple of quotes from the Old Testament, again, from Psalm 22 and from Isaiah 8. Look at verses 12 and 13, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Those who are saved have this relationship. Again, we're thinking, how could I ever have a relationship with one whose position and power are so great? And then we hear the language of brother. He's not ashamed to call us brother. So here's a point of application for us. We are sanctified by Jesus' blood, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers. I mean, some of you got a family member and, and we sometimes joke about it. Like you're with somebody out in public, and you're like, I am not related to that guy. Right? Just kind of like a little bit embarrassed, a little ashamed. Um, kids probably have done that with their dad before. Right? Not mine, but other kids probably. Uh, right? But do you hear this? I mean, think about this. Let's get serious here for a second. Some of you, if you look at your life and you look at your past, there are things in your past, things in your life that you are ashamed of, things in your present that you're ashamed of. 
things that maybe only your family knows, maybe even things that even your family doesn't know. And we don't share those things with a lot of people because we don't know what they'll think of us. But do you hear the good news here in this passage? Jesus, not ashamed to call us brothers. He knows everything. You haven't hidden anything from him. He knows it all, yet not ashamed to call us brothers. Feel the weight of that. Let's move on, verses 14 to 16, because there's more good news. Verses 14 to 16, we see this, Since therefore the children, see again family language, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus becoming fully human, right? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. This is good news. Jesus becomes fully human and Jesus dies. The eternal Son of God becomes fully human and then dies in order that he might destroy the power of death and the one who holds the power of death, the devil. And that he might release those of us who have fear of death and death is scary. And he releases us from that fear of death and the lifelong slavery that we've been in through his own death. And then he keeps on with the argument in verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, right? So so all your fascination with angels, just be quiet about angels for a second. Jesus didn't become an angel to help the angels. Jesus became a human to help humans, right? He came to suffer and to die that we might be released from slavery, released from the power of death and from the tyranny of the devil. This is what he has done for us. And so is there any application in us for this? Oh, yes, there is. Only in Jesus do we have victory over death and the devil. We need to be probably more aware than we are of the great power of the enemy, of the devil. He is real. I think often of the words from Martin Luther's great hymn, his, speaking of the devil, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. You think there's some evil people here on earth? They're nothing compared to the devil. But later in the song, he writes this, the prince of darkness, grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's that one little word? The word Jesus. Jesus, who has victory through his own death over the enemy. Jesus gives us victory over the devil, and Jesus gives us victory over death. If we're honest, dying can be brutal. You've maybe walked with a family member, a friend, through death. Death can be filled with pain. It can be slow, agonizing. But for those of us who trust in Jesus, it's ultimately not to be feared because we know that death is the doorway that enters us into our eternal reality of life with Jesus. And so I don't know where everybody at is here today, but let me just... Let you know clearly 
that there is only one way for you to have assurance that after you die, you will be forever with Jesus. And it doesn't really have anything with you living a good life. It has to do with what Christ has done, who lived as a human, became fully human, and lived a perfect life. That's the only standard, and you haven't lived up to it, but Jesus has. And then he suffered in your place and died in your place. So that by uniting yourself to him by faith, you're born again. A new life, eternal life with him that begins now and lasts forever. So repent and trust in Jesus today. If you haven't, come and talk to me. Let's talk. And then there's two more verses here, verses 17 and 18. These are beautiful as well. Again, family language, here's what we see. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, big word, we don't use it. You probably didn't use it at all this week. It's a word, though, that tells of a glorious reality that Jesus, in his death, has been our substitute, absorbing the wrath of the Father for our sins in himself. And so we hear that Jesus made like us in every respect, like he got tired, he needed to eat food, right? He was fully human. He felt the pain of physical suffering. He endured the pain of death. Why? Well, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. All the priests that the people in the Jewish faith had known lived and died and they worked. They had, you know, a certain shift. They would go work in the temple and they would make animal sacrifices and they would come out and another one would come in and make animal sacrifices. And this just kept going around and around and around. But Jesus came to be a merciful and faithful high priest who did not sacrifice another, but who gave himself who himself was the sacrifice, making propitiation, doing something that no animal could do because it was an animal. But being fully human, Jesus could absorb, take all of our sin on himself and absorb all of the wrath of the Father in our, on our behalf. That's why we're saying Jesus paid it all. Not like he did most of it and now it's up to you. Like that's not it. He paid it all. He was the propitiation for our sin. So this is this good news? Is this good news for us? Application, benefit number whatever? Only in Jesus can we be spared from the wrath of God. Good news. You deserve the wrath of God. All of us deserve the wrath of God, but only in Christ can we be spared from it. Earlier, we sang... Uh, uh, yeah, did we sing? I can't remember. We sang a lot of stuff. Yeah, we sang, the Father turns His face away. Psalm 22, which is one of the things quoted here, but the one part of Psalm 22 that's not quoted here was quoted by Jesus himself on the cross. Remember what Jesus said on the cross from Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says that as he bears the wrath of the Father. The Father turns his face away. The eternal Son, who had always lived in perfect relationship with the Father, now feeling not the Father's love, but feeling the Father's wrath, absorbing that in our place for our sins. That's what it means to make propitiation. That's beneficial to us because that's what we deserved, and that's not what we get for all of us who are in Christ. And then finally, the last verse, verse 18. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, think about that, Jesus being fully human, he was tempted. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Is there benefit for us in this? Oh, yes. Only in Jesus can we find help when tempted. Because here's what we know. When we're tempted, the easiest thing to do is to give in to temptation. When we're tempted, it's easiest to give in to temptation. It's easy to give in to an addiction. It's easy to give in to lust. It's easy to give in to greed. It's easy to give in to gossip. And you know what else is really easy? Making excuses for our sin. That's super easy to do. Because there's all sorts of other people that are messing us up in all sorts of situations. Well, if that wouldn't have happened, then I wouldn't have. And we fail to remember that Jesus can help us when we're tempted. We're going to talk about this more here in a moment as we prepare to take communion. But I want to just close the sermon now with prayer because we need God's help. So let's look to God in prayer. Father, we, we have no right to even call you Father like I just did. So we come to you in the name of your Son, who willingly gave himself up for us, your Son who became fully human, who was tempted, who suffered, and who died. We give you thanks that in him, because he's not ashamed to call us family. We will one day be brought to glory. Because he suffered and died, we have victory over death and the devil. And because he bore your wrath in our place, we get this undeserved reward of eternal life. We're thankful that because Jesus suffered for us when tempted, he can help us when tempted. We believe that Jesus is better than anything. Not just because of his exalted position and power, but because he became like us in every way. And because he sacrificed.